This morning we are going to begin as announced a new book study together. So if you have your Bibles and you'll go to the Gospel of John in the New Testament. And if you do need a Bible, we have some available here. Just get the attention of one of the guys in the aisles so you can turn to the Gospel of John and read for yourself uh, what the Word of God says as we start a new study through a book of the Bible together. And we'll make our way verse by verse through the Gospel of John in the season ahead. John chapter 1, and if you are turned to John's gospel, the first chapter, shall we stand together as we do out of reverence for the word of God, and we'll read our portion of scripture this morning. John begins in this way, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming in the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And Father, we... Humbly just take a moment in your presence to bow our hearts, our soul, our mind, our spirit before you, just reverently acknowledging the inspiration, the authority, the value of your word and how we believe you inspired and gave it to us that we might hear the voice of the living God speaking to us the will of God and the things of God. So, Lord, we pray this morning, prepare us supernaturally by your spirit Make us alert and attentive, even expectant, Lord, that there's something that you want to say to us through this portion of your written word. We ask, as always, that your Holy Spirit be our teacher, our interpreter, and our instructor, and that you would speak to us now through your word. Bless your word as we open it together, and we ask in Jesus' wonderful name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, there's probably no more important discovery, I think, that any or every person can make than to come to recognize or realize that Jesus is, Jesus was, and Jesus will always be God. The deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God, to recognize that, and then secondly, to respond to Jesus in a receptive way. That is, whereby you receive him rather than reject him. I don't think there's any more valuable thing any human being can experience than that reality. And our passage this morning seems to be addressing both recognizing Jesus and receiving Jesus. In fact, quite honestly, we'll see that is also what is really the main point or the main purpose of the entire Gospel of John, this new book that we're going to study together. Some books of the Bible, you notice as you read them and you study them, the main point or the main purpose of that book or the kind of reason it was written or the intended goal is very, very 
clear. Other books, it's not so clear. But the Gospel of John is one of those books we have in the Bible where it is clearly spelled out for us. In fact, let me just read to you, for sake of beginning this book this morning, from the 20th chapter, it says this, John 20, verse 30 and 31. Just listen so you make sure you hear it. It says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written, John says, in this book. But these, what he did write, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John 20, verse 30 and 31, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, tell us specifically exactly why John felt led to write this particular record that we have as the Gospel of John. It was written, he said, I could have written a whole lot more. There's way more that Jesus did. But he said, I specifically wrote in the way that I did that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, that you'd believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that in believing in him, you might experience spiritual and eternal life. That is the strengthening of the faith of a believer in Christ and also seeking to reveal to the unbeliever who Jesus is they might come to know him in a saving relationship. Now the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are records of the good news of Jesus that are the result of the Holy Spirit inspiring and directing four different individuals who the gospels are named after to record personal accounts of the events of Jesus's life of his ministry, his miracles, his teaching, as well as his death and his resurrection. And each writer wrote from their own personal vantage point, uh, and particularly for specific reasons when they were writing their Gospels. And because of that, each writer sort of includes and inserts certain details that the other Gospels do not, giving us, which is a beautiful thing, cumulatively from the four Gospels, a much broader and more well-informed picture of the events and the life of all who Jesus was and that he did. But each individual gospel, you'll take note if you study them, is written with a theme in mind and each individual gospel is written with an audience in mind. For example, just briefly, Matthew gospel, Matthew was written with the Jew in mind. Because of that, Matthew seeks to present Jesus as the king of Israel the promised and predicted Messiah. That's why in Matthew's gospel, there are more references to the Old Testament, more quotes to the Old Testament, because Matthew was trying to primarily reach the Jew and to show them that he was the promised Old Testament predicted Messiah that they had been waiting for in Israel. Mark's gospel is written with the Roman in mind. He wants to present Jesus as the servant. Because of that, it's the shortest gospel. It's very concise. It's very fast moving as the Roman mindset would be because Mark wanted to reach the, the Roman and he presents Jesus as the servant. Luke, the physician, writes his gospel with the Greek in mind. And as Luke writes his gospel, uh, Luke wants to present Jesus as the son of man. And he seeks to emphasize the humanity of Jesus and the human nature of Christ being God in the flesh. John really is somewhat what we could call the universal gospel. Uh, it's written in a way to reach the world, any audience. And John seeks to present Jesus as the son of God. Luke emphasizes his humanity. 
John seeks to emphasize the deity of Jesus to show us that Jesus was God. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are often also referred to as synoptic Gospels. And that word synoptic basically just means to see together with a common view. The idea is to present from the same vantage point and to kind of... Uh, give uh, a similar outlook and that's true as you read Matthew Mark and Luke the first three gospels you see there's a lot of unique features in each book yet by the same token because they're synoptic gospels they also cover a lot of the exact same events and miracles and teachings of Jesus and they're very similar in their content as you read through them whereas John's gospel being the final one is clearly unique in its content it's very unique from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It leaves out some of the record and some of the events of the synoptic gospels that are covered there, but it also inserts many extra things that are not included in the first three synoptic gospels regarding the life and events of Jesus, unique miracles and teachings that we don't find in the other gospels. We have the upper room discourse given to us in John's gospel. We have the seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of the life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth and life. We don't get these statements in the other gospels. And John himself, the writer of the gospel, seemed to be an individual, not to say that others weren't, but had a very intimate, close relationship with Jesus. Uh, John not only was called to be one of the twelve to follow Jesus as a disciple, but he ends up being a part, remember, of that inner three of Jesus' followers of the twelve. Matthew, uh, excuse me, uh, that Peter and James and John sort of had an inner sphere of connection with Jesus, sort of an inner circle that Jesus interacted with at times on private occasions. We find John leaning against the chest of Jesus, having a conversation there in the upper room at the cross as Jesus is about to die. He entrusts the care of his aging mother Mary to John uh, it shows you that there was a connection there between Jesus and John whereby Jesus as he knew he was about to die asked John to take care of his mother and John apparently felt so close to Jesus he's the one disciple who calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved <laughs> he takes that title to himself uh, which just goes, Jay, this is the idea. You know, sometimes uh, parents have children and as a child, maybe you, you say, I feel like I'm my dad's favorite. And, and, and the, the John apparently sensed this with Jesus. He just felt, I'm the one that Jesus loves. <laughs> I mean, it may sound a little arrogant, but it just speaks of his sense of, he felt a close connection with Jesus. He just sensed the love of Jesus. Perhaps that's why this relational closeness, he's used by God as the human instrument to give such deep insights we find in this gospel together. So let's jump in. Verse one, John begins saying, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So John opens his gospel record with a clear declaration of the deity of Jesus, or we might say the divinity of Jesus. The idea of both those terms is in essence saying Jesus is God. This is what we call in the gospel accounts a prologue or it's the opening introduction. And usually the gospel writers in the prior three 
open up with maybe a genealogy of the family lineage and heritage of Jesus as a Jew uh, and, and his natural line. And then there maybe there's some discussion about the miraculous conception and the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. But John, when he gives his prologue or introduction, different than the first three Gospels, he doesn't go back to the genealogy of Jesus' human history and lineage. He doesn't go back to Bethlehem where he was born. Look what John does. John goes all the way back to eternity. He goes all the way back to the time prior to the creation of earth and mankind, all the way back before humanity ever even existed, into this thing he calls the beginning. Whatever the beginning is, the beginning before everything began, if you would, from a physical or human standpoint. He says, in the beginning was the word. Now, that should sound familiar. How does our Bible open? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So again, this idea when the Bible tries to use human terms to explain supernatural things that supersede our little finite intellects, the Bible uses this terminology in the beginning as a way to describe before the start of physical creation and mankind at the beginning, whatever the beginning is, somehow eternally, uh, which we're not fully abreast to, God has always existed. He's the self-existent eternal God that before the beginning of all things having begun, there was God. He was already there in that beginning. Now, in the same way, in direct reference to Jesus Christ, we can tell that's what John's talking about in context of chapter one. He now says in the beginning was the word, the word, that term that John uses there is logos from the Greek. And it was a term that meant something very clearly to both to the Jew and to the Greek. Uh, the word logos, where we get our word logical or logic, uh, to the Greeks, the logos was the thinker behind the thought or the creator behind creation, the designer behind everything that was designed, the, the knowledgeable one who could bring things somehow into existence. It was the grand deity among the minds of the Greeks. In the same way, that term, the logos, it also was a term to the Jew that was a reference to the creator. So the word logos, both to the Jew and to the Greek universally, meant very clearly deity. It meant divinity. So what John is trying to do here, again, trying to reach all people groups, he uses something that will resonate with all mankind. And he says, in essence, do you want to know who the thinker behind the thought is? Do you want to know who the creator behind all creation? He's going to say, the Logos, it's Jesus. And therefore, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. In verse 14, he's going to say this word who is a person is the one who came from eternity and became flesh and dwelt among us. But John's saying prior to that time at the beginning, Jesus, the word, he says, and look at verse 1 there, was God. He was God. He has always been God. Underline that. Regarding Jesus, the Holy Spirit directs John to record here in the Bible, Jesus, the Word, the Logos, was God. He was God, making a clear declaration of the deity of Jesus for who he is. And let me say this morning, please hear me, the deity of Jesus is an essential, critical, fundamental, non-negotiable doctrine 
of authentic Christianity. That Jesus is God. Not that he's a God, not that he became God, but that Jesus is God. And any teaching or belief, I don't care if they claim the word Jesus, Christ, or Christian in their terminology, any teaching or belief system that denies or even diminishes the deity of Jesus is heretical and is cultic. And I think we need to remember that, especially in relation to things like the great danger of things even like Jehovah's Witness or Mormonism, where they do refer to the person in the name of Jesus. But yet the Jesus that they're referring to is not the same Jesus of the Bible. Because the name Jesus, the person Jesus they're referring to, what they teach or believe is that Jesus was a spirit brother of Lucifer or an angel or a creation of God. In fact, they have purposely, in their own translation, inserted an A into this text here to say that the word was a God. It exists nowhere in any manuscripts that exist. It's the word was God. He was God, that he's deity. The inspired scripture teaches and Jesus himself claimed that he was God and the divinity of Jesus is an absolute must. And I want to point out to you from our text this morning, not only just a direct declaration, but even some further proofs as we move along here of how we see that Jesus, the word was and is God. Again, if you're a note taker, the first thing that clearly tells us that Jesus is God is because number one, Jesus is eternal. He's eternal in his nature. Again, Jesus was not created. He's always existed. The Bible teaches the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, and that's what's being referred to here in verses 1 and 2, that Jesus has always, before he came to the earth as a man at one point in time in history, that the pre-existence of Jesus together with the Father has always been true. That's what our text is saying. In the beginning, before the beginning began was the existence already of Jesus, the Word, who was God, that he was always eternally existent. We see repeated two times for emphasis in verse 1 and again in verse 2, this statement, look at it there, he was in the beginning with God. The idea is with the Father. Now here's what's interesting, that terminology with God, when you look at it, the, the, the Greek there, it literally is a terminology that speaks of being face-to-face -face with intimate communion. So what the Bible is saying is that Jesus, who is God, was face-to-face -face as well with God ever since the time and eternity has ever existed. It's a reference to Jesus being there in face-to-face -face close communion, pre-existent with God the Father, which of course is just indicating to us another of many references in the Bible to what we call the Trinity. That our God is a triune God, one God, yet somehow manifested in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Fully one, unified, but yet still distinct in their functions, unique in their roles and in their activity. And this marvelous mystery of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, fully one, yet three distinct persons in their manifestation. Let me be very candid. You're never going to grasp it. In the finite mind that you have now in your flesh, 
you know, people try and give applications and illustrations to, to try and help better understand it, but they always break down in time. The reality is this. The Bible teaches it throughout and we accept it by faith. Great is the mystery of godliness, the Bible says. The Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And look, I'm okay with mystery. If God becomes small enough for me to fully figure out, then somehow he's not big enough to worship anymore because I figured him out. But the Bible teaches that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. That's why Jesus often would say, I and the Father are one. Uh, this marvelous mystery, separate persons, but yet the same person. Marvel of all marvels. The Trinity, Jesus was there with God face to face, referring to the fact again that Jesus is eternal. And often in his earthly ministry, he would infer his eternal nature and existence. Jesus would say things like, before Abraham was, I am. You're not old. Our father Abraham said, Jesus would say, look, before Abraham ever was, I am. I was already existent before Abraham, your father, ever came. In John 17, Jesus prays in this manner. Listen to this. Jesus says in John 17, 5, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So again, Jesus is God because Jesus is eternal. And being eternal is an attribute of deity. And so we see that Jesus is God because he's eternal. Secondly, notice in verse 3, we see that Jesus is God because Jesus also is creator. He's creator. Look at verse 3. It says, All things, regarding to Jesus, were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So not only the Father, God the Father, but also Jesus was the active agent in the creative process. Referring to Jesus, it says, All things that exist were made through him, that is, by his creative power, and it also then says, for emphasis in the reverse, without Jesus, nothing was made that was ever made. So again, the Bible here and in other places clearly teaches that Jesus is creator, which indicates that Jesus is God. Because God alone has that creative capacity and attribute. Listen to Colossians 1, 16 and 17. It says, for by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. That's a good reminder. And then listen to this great verse regarding, and he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things consist, or your translations may say, hold together. The Bible says that Jesus created everything. Everything was created by him and everything was created for him. So if you have a question this morning, why am I on this earth for Jesus? Because you were created for Jesus. That is your fundamental purpose for existence. And I love the Bible says not only did he create all things, but in him all things now currently are being held together. Again, to the very atoms of everything that exists, Jesus is keeping it all together. He's holding everything literally together. He's keeping your heart beating, your lungs breathing. He's keeping everything in existence in the universe from blowing apart and erupting because he's holding it all together. And until the moment that he lets it all go, it'll stay held together. Because he's holding it together by his authority. Now this morning, let me just say by way of a small encouragement, that should be very reassuring. That Jesus is in control. 
He's holding everything together. And that means this. Whatever's going on in your world, Jesus can hold it together. I don't know if I'm going to be able to hold it together. That's okay. Jesus is holding it together. I feel like I'm going to fall apart. That's okay. Jesus will hold it together. Jesus can hold things together. No matter how difficult things become or overwhelming for us, if Jesus is holding the whole world and the universe and creation together, certainly in our world, he can hold things together, keep things together in our lives. You know, in Jesus' earthly life and ministry at times as the creator, we even see him when you read the Gospels demonstrating his power over physical creation remember on a few occasions jesus and his disciples would be in a storm and he'd show his authority as the storm was raging and jesus would just stand up and say be still and instantly the waves would cease and the wind would stop and everything would become calm and the disciples on one occasion said this in response who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him the answer was obvious the creator and the creator was telling his creation to submit to his authority and it would submit to his authority because that creation the wind the waves everything was recognizing who jesus was and submitting to jesus's authority again if creation and nature and wind and waves and that powerful ocean that's just over there submits to jesus and obeys the voice of Jesus, I probably ought to too. If that powerful ocean that can knock me way off course or suck me out in a riptide, that bows the knee to Jesus, why shouldn't I bow the knee to Jesus? If that obeys his voice as a small little finite speck of dust as one of his creatures, I should submit to his authority and obey his voice in my life as well. It just goes without saying. Also, thirdly, now we see that Jesus is also God. A third reason we see verse 4 and 5 is because Jesus gives life and light to people. Look what John goes on to say. In him, Jesus was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. So again, Jesus possessed in himself and his very person life which it says he could give to men and that life, the purpose of it, our Bible verses say here, was for the illumination or for the, the lighting of mankind's souls. Look at the term there. It says in him, verse four, was life. Now that word life that's used is not the term, typical term, bios, which refers to physical life or natural life. It's a purposeful term used there. Rather, instead, it's the word zoe in the Greek, which means spiritual life or what we might call age abiding or eternal life. So here, when John writes this, he doesn't say in Jesus was bios, physical life. Certainly, God's the author of life. But John's saying here, in Jesus was Zoe, age-abiding, spiritual, eternal life. And because Jesus was the eternal God because he is God that dimension of eternal life is where he existed and he possessed in himself age abiding eternal life so he could therefore give to all mankind alone age abiding life eternal life spiritual life if he was received Jesus will say in John's gospel I am the way the truth and the life same idea 
age-abiding life, spiritual life. Spiritual and eternal life is found and received directly from Jesus himself, his person. Jot down in your notes or please take mental note of 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 through 13 because John gives commentary on this, very crucial verses. Listen to what he says. I want to read it to you. John writes in his other letter, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Do you see what the Bible says there? The Bible says it's not a I hope I have eternal life. I hope I'm going to go to heaven. The Bible says you can know. In fact, the Bible says you do know. Everyone knows. If you have Jesus, you have eternal life because eternal life is found in Jesus. So if you have Jesus, you have eternal life. If you don't have Jesus or you refuse or you don't embrace Jesus, you don't have eternal life because eternal life can only be received by the eternal God himself who gives that life to us. So he says, I've written this to you as a believer so you can know. Do you have Jesus? Stop worrying about it. You already possess now eternal life. One day you'll experience it in the dimension, but you already possess this eternal life. That's why, quite honestly, you're so frustrated living in this world. Because eternal life is already inside of you. And so you, sometimes you feel like, why do I feel homesick? I don't feel like I fit here. Right. Congratulations, you're saved. If you really feel like you fit here, see me afterwards. But that eternal life that we experience, we receive from Jesus. And that spiritual life Jesus offers, verse 5 also tells us, is intended to illuminate the darkened soul of humanity as the result of being dead in sin. See, we're born living in spiritual darkness because of our sinful fallen nature. We don't possess spiritual life or light. We all need to be made alive spiritually and we all need to be, in a sense, enlightened spiritually because the darkness of sin in our soul. That's why our verses here, 4 and 5, say this life that Jesus offers, it's the light of men. It's the illumination or enlightenment for the darkened soul inside every person to be able to know and understand God. Jesus is going to say in chapter 8, I am the light of the world. And he's going to say, he who follows me won't walk in darkness. But then he says this, but we'll have the light of life. The light of life. That the life of Christ brings internal enlightenment. So therefore embracing Jesus is how we are awakened spiritually and it's how we're enlightened spiritually. The tragedy is if people don't understand who Jesus is, they reject that light. If they don't recognize him for who he is, they reject that light for their soul. So the first coming of Jesus was intended to awaken and enlighten people, but it was unbelief towards Jesus. Verse 5 says, the light shined into the darkness, but the dark world didn't comprehend it. They didn't recognize Jesus, so therefore they stood in their darkness spiritually as a result. Verse 6 goes on to say there, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. As we know John the Baptist. This man came for a witness to bear witness to the light or of the light, excuse me, that all through him might believe. 
He was not that light himself, the idea is, but was sent to bear witness of that light. So here at this point, we're briefly introduced to John the Baptist. We'll read much more about him as the chapter goes on. But this is sort of the summary statement of his life here, that John was sent as a forerunner to come before the Lord Jesus Christ, before the Messiah came to the earth. This man, John, was ordained by the Spirit as a prophet to prepare the way of the Lord to get people ready. It says here he was sent by God ahead of the time that Jesus came. Look, not to draw attention to himself by his ministry, not to get people to put their eyes upon him, but to witness to, to testify, it says, to the one who was the light, the light of the world, Jesus. Verse 7 there states it that John came to bear witness to the light that all people, the idea is through John's testimony, might believe in Jesus. That through John's testimony in life, people might believe in Jesus Christ. Again, I look at that and I think, wow, what a great life goal for all of us. That in this year ahead, we might live in a way whereby our life, our testimony, who we are, what we say and what we do, would be the result of what John did. And that's this, is that through us, people might believe. That we might see people believe in Jesus through us because of how we live our Christian life authentically, sincerely, because of the things that we say in our conversations, that through us, Lord, use me like John the Baptist, that through me, people might believe in Jesus, that our life could be used in such a way. Well, continuing to refer to Jesus as the light, verse 9 then says, that was the true light regarding Jesus, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Notice, the Bible says here of Jesus that he is, underscore it, the true light. The true light, which gives light to every man in the world. Jesus, please remember, did not come into our world and say, I am a light for the world. He didn't say that. Jesus pretty strictly said it this way, I am the light of the world. The light. Jesus isn't a light. He is the light. Here we read in verse 9 of Jesus that he was, the Bible says, the true light for all mankind and for their soul. As it comes to spiritual matters, I think every man and every woman in the world in some measure is searching for answers. People don't want to admit it, maybe. They don't want to talk about it. But the Bible says God set eternity in our hearts. By nature, every human being, because of the way God's created us and God's ultimate plan for us, to some measure, whether they're talking about it or admitting it or not, in regards to spiritual and eternal things, they're searching for answers. And there's a deep inner desire to be, if you would, enlightened. People want to know what the truth is. What's the truth, man? I, I want to be enlightened. Is it real? Is it not real? They want to discover what's true. And sadly, here's what's scary. There's a lot of false lights that exist in this world in regards to spiritual matters and religion and pursuits of enlightenment. And just because something offers a form of light or promises enlightenment, don't go chasing after it. And encourage other people not to go chasing after it. Because the reality is this. Oh, I saw a light at the end of the tunnel. I had a dream. I saw a light at the end of the tunnel. I had a vision. I saw a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, look, maybe there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but that light at the end of the tunnel may be a fire. 
That light at the end of the tunnel may be the daylight to drop off of a cliff. You want to make sure you find the true light. And the Bible says here that there are many forms of false light. In fact, 2 Corinthians 11.4 of Satan says that he himself masquerades, listen, as an angel of light. The great deceiver of all mankind that wants to destroy people eternally and spiritually, what does he do? He uses light and beauty to attract people, to draw people, to then what? Deceive them in their desire for enlightenment. So we have to be careful. The Bible says there's one true light and that true light is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who created us and who can alone illuminate and enlighten us to the truth of God for who he is. So referring now to how mankind responds to Jesus in his first coming specifically to the earth, verse 10 then declares to us that Jesus was in the world and the world, again, notice, was made through him, creator, but yet the world did not know him. So look what the Bible's showing here. The creator himself came into this very world he created and the creatures that he gave life to. It says here, verse 10, he was in the world, which was made through him, so that as he visited his creation and creatures... Yet, sadly, the people of the world, it says, which he made, did not know him. The ideas did not recognize him or failed to realize who he was. During the time period Jesus was present among humanity on the earth as God in the flesh, he was not recognized or acknowledged for who he really was. Now, now I had to think to myself, what must that have been like for Jesus? I mean, imagine what this is like Jesus coming, God living as man among mankind, fulfilling perfectly hundreds of specific predictions of exactly how he would come and you could identify it was truly him when he did come and yet for humanity to fail to recognize him for who he was. What must that have felt like for Jesus? Being God among humanity, Lord of creation, yet being overlooked being brushed aside and ignored, for God to have descended from glory to come and live on this earth among humanity and to be given no recognition or acknowledgement for who he was. The point of the verse here, the implication is God came to us in the person of Jesus and he was ignored. Jesus was ignored. He was overlooked. He was cast aside, brushed off quite, quite easily and can we just say very honestly, sadly today, that is still probably one of the greatest sins of humanity. That Jesus is ignored. He just brushed aside as no big deal. You, know, you almost get the concept when people talk about Jesus sometimes, it's, it's like they're willing, to, they're willing to add Jesus into their life. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll give a little bit. I mean, I, I'll put Jesus into my life, not Lord of my life. He's not going to be in control of my life. And, and this whole idea where we so disesteem, he was God. And, and how easy it is, Christian or unbeliever, perhaps we possibly sometimes fail to really recognize him for who he really is and we respond wrongly to him. We ignore God. We ignore Jesus. This was the experience the first time Christ came. Look how verse 11 goes on. It says he came to his own 
and his own did not receive him. So again, Jesus coming desiring and deserving recognition to be welcomed, to be accepted. Instead, what does it say? Verse 11, he was refused. He was rejected. This may perhaps be one of maybe the saddest verses in the Bible. A Bible that just speaks of how Jesus came and he was not received. It says he came to his own. Most likely a direct reference there to the Jewish people. God designating, selecting the Jewish people to be those through whom the Messiah and Savior would come through, giving them the scriptures and the prophets and prophecies and temple and priests to prepare them. Jesus, as a Jew, therefore came to his own, to the Jews first, to reveal himself as the predicted Messiah of the Jewish people. Yet, the same statement, he came to his own, maybe also could be a reference more broadly even to humanity in general, because that's true as well. That Jesus, if you would, came as a man to mankind, to his own creation that he made. Yet in either case, whether it's referring to the Jews specifically and initially or humanity in general, the truth is still the same. Most of the Jews did not receive Jesus, right? Most of the Jews did not accept him or receive him as the Savior or the Messiah. They refused to embrace him as Savior and Lord. And many of humanity in general did not and still do not receive Jesus. Instead, he's rejected, he's refused. You know, despite who Jesus is and all he has done in his love and his sacrifice and his revelation of himself to humanity, making himself so accessible, primarily, the truth is, primarily Jesus experiences a lot of rejection, a lot of refusal. Do you feel rejected? Do you feel refused? Listen, I can tell you somebody who understands. Because Jesus, the one who should have been welcomed with open arms and embraced, Jesus primarily was not received and is not received by those he seeks to save and reach, which is clear proof in the Bible again of the free will of man to choose, to make their own decision. Jesus lets people decide how they will respond to him. He comes, he offers himself to the best of his ability. He spreads wide his arms pleading that people would come to him and not go to hell instead. And if people do not want to receive him, Jesus lets them exercise their free will and he lets them refuse him. He lets them not receive him. Jesus will not, God will not force anyone to receive him if they choose not to. If a person is unwilling to receive Jesus as the Savior for their sin and they want to try and do it on their own, make it on their own, negotiate their own deal with God, Jesus won't force them. If a person does not want to receive the Lordship of Jesus over their life and they refuse to do that, Jesus will not violate a person's free will. He will do everything to reach and compel and reveal again and again and again and again. But people have free will. We're created in the image of God. We're volitional creatures that have the ability to decide. And here it says Jesus came, but they did not receive him. Look, verse 12 and 13. But as many as received him, the other side of free will, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but 
of God. So thankfully, the unbelief and rejection of the Jews initially as a people, as well as all of humanity in general throughout history, thankfully that's not universal. Thankfully, some did and some still do receive Jesus and become children of God. Now, verse 12 and 13, sort of connecting to verse 11, certainly reveals to us the desire of God. This is the will of God that each person would choose to respond to Jesus, as I said earlier, in a receptive way, where they would choose to receive Jesus as Savior. They would choose to receive Jesus as the Lord of their life. And please, please hear me in this this morning. Notice, there is only really two choices in response to Jesus. Either you do not receive Jesus or you do receive Jesus. The Bible teaches very clearly there's no such thing as neutral ground spiritually. Indecision really is decision from a spiritual perspective. Jesus said this. He said, if you're not for me, you are against me. I'm just trying to think it out still. Well, Jesus says, if you're not for me yet, then you are against me still. So the Bible doesn't say there's a third option. There are two decisions, only two possible human responses to the offer of Jesus' love and relationship and forgiveness and eternal life and lordship over us. Either we do not receive and accept Jesus or we do receive and accept Jesus. But that's the determining factor for all of spiritual life and eternity. How we respond, because Jesus is going to say in John 14, 6, rather boldly, I am the way. And no one comes to the Father exclusively except through me. So it's very clear from heaven's perspective, God's desire and will is that our response be what we read in verse 12 and 13, that we do receive Jesus. And look at the result here with me of those who receive Jesus. To those who receive Jesus, it says he gives the right to become children of God. Now certainly it is true. We're all creations of God. We've all been created by God. He is the author of life. But yet the Bible also teaches that we are not automatically children of God spiritually. We're not automatically a part of the family of God. The reason is, again, we're born sinful by nature, so we lack relationship with God because of sin in our lives. Therefore, at some point in our life, look what the text says there, we must become a child of God. To those who receive him, he gives the right to become a child of God. At some point in your life, please hear me, as a breathing human being, you personally must become a child of God. That must happen. It's in receiving Jesus we receive from Jesus the right, the idea is the power or privilege to become a child of God spiritually as we understand our sinful condition and separation from God and that Jesus had to die on the cross for us, for our sin. And that Jesus rose again from the dead for us so that he could be a living Savior and a living Lord to forgive us and to give to us his forgiveness for our sin, to make us righteous and acceptable before God, to give us the eternal quality of life that we need to go to heaven and to give to us this spiritual adoption into the family of God. Only Jesus as the Son of God can make you and I a fellow child of God. The Bible says we receive that 
Look at it. When we receive Jesus, when we receive Jesus, that's when we're born spiritually and begin a spiritual life. To those who receive him, look at verse 13. Those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of God, nor of the, excuse me, the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but born how? Of God. Again, this talks about the spiritual birth experience that does and must happen for every human being at some point in their life in order to become a child of God. Jesus will talk more about this in chapter 3 in great depth. But we see that when a person receives Jesus as a result, then they are born of God. Then they become a child of God at that point in a spiritual birth process. Even as we all have to experience a physical birth to enter into the physical dimension and experience a physical life, the Bible says in the same way, that's how we begin natural life, there must be the same experience spiritually. There must come a point, the only way to start or begin a spiritual life and experience the spiritual life is there has to be a spiritual birth process. There must be a time when we are born spiritually. The idea is we all need a second birth or rebirth. We're born once physically, but we must be reborn spiritually to experience the spiritual realm. And the way a person is born of God, it says here, is not by natural human achievement, not of blood or human descent or the will of the flesh or the will of a man. The idea is from a father. The implication here is it doesn't come by natural descent. Many of the Jews, quite honestly, thought that they were right with God because they were a Jew. And let's be very honest this morning. In the same way, there are a lot of people on this earth, sadly, that think they're right with God because, well, I was, I was raised a Christian. I was raised a, a Catholic, raised a Methodist. I was born in the church. I was born in a Christian family. My, and, and I was baptized as a baby. And there are many people who think somehow that by the will of decision of a parent deciding for you, or look, the Bible says spiritual life cannot be passed on or conferred by a natural means, through some rite or ritual, or you can't acquire by attending your set of religious classes at a certain age in your life, and then once you attend all the classes and you get the magical rite ritual waved over your head, now, boom, you're a child of God. The Bible says it doesn't come through natural experience. It can't be received in that way. The reason is because it can only be received from God. There must be a spiritual experience that happens where a person is born of God, regenerated by his spirit. And how does that happen? Well, verse 12 says, when we receive Jesus. When we receive Jesus, the way or process to receive Jesus isn't complicated. It says there, we believe in him. That's how you receive Jesus. You believe in him. You believe these things are true for the first time in your own life. You say, I get it now. Now I see what my mom meant. Now I understand what those other people who call themselves Christian men. I get it now. For me, I, I, I get it. And you understand it, and then therefore you choose to exercise your own will, your own belief and confidence, and therefore you call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And you say, Jesus, I need to be saved. Jesus, I want to receive you. The million-dollar question this morning is this. Where do you stand in relation to Jesus? Do you recognize who Jesus is? Have you come to really recognize for yourself who Jesus is? And have you received him? Have you received him yet? 
It didn't happen automatically. You don't gradually absorb it over years of sitting in a church. Any more than sitting in a garage all day long makes you turn into a car. Have you received Jesus? And uh, well, this morning, have you received Him? Not the Christian faith. Have you received Jesus? And third, let me emphasize this. Has there ever been a definite moment, a definite time in your life where you received Him? Where something happened, where you understood and you said, I, Jesus, I want to receive you. I want to receive you. I understand it all now. And I want to receive you. If you have not done yet, the Bible says now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Let's stand. Let's pray together.